How did you become involved? What year was that? Well, at the time I was a freshman in high school and had been approached by John Carr. In the early 60s, drugs were just an experimental thing. He had been giving them out in a school. From there, you know, I said, do you want to try another experiment, something a little different? There were a lot of things that went on in that high school that nobody talked about. The clip you're listening to is an interview Maury Terry conducted back in 1992 with a man named John Paul, who claimed to have an intimate knowledge into the origins of the Son of Sam cult, also known as the Children. Did there come a point in time when you were formally initiated, if you will, into this group? That was at an Anamaya Park, and that was April of 61. John had invited us because we had been going down on Meyer Park and looking around, and he was showing me the ruins of houses and said, you know, there was really strange stuff that would go on around here. You know, but do it in a joking way. It was all in fun, we thought. The day that I was brought down there, what I remember basically is getting very disorientated, and I knew that it was, it was drugs. I was already on speed. There were other people walking around, but you never knew what was going on. They were also in a state of disorientation. It was almost getting dark. They started dealing with chanting. I thought it was Latin, but it was something that started out very slowly and increased in intensity over the period that this thing went on. And it went on for a couple of hours. I do remember being brought in front of this very cold marble platform and being forced face down. And there were other people inside of me, other kids, and we were so docile. The drugs had basically put us into a mood where you really didn't care what happened to you. That was the feeling, okay, do whatever with me what you want. Whoever was holding us down had whispered to us, basically, as best as I can remember, don't worry, you're not going to get hurt, but you're going to be painted or covered or whatever with this warm fluid, and they told us that it was blood. During the progression of this thing, turned around, and we had heard dogs getting killed. And, I mean, it's one of the most horrible things I'd ever heard. I'll never forget it. They held us down. I remember them taking off my jacket and my shirt and then having my pants pulled down. Okay. Were, you, were you assaulted sexually at that point? Yeah. The yeah. alien initiates, including the girls. And they wanted basically virgins, either men or boys or girls. After you left Untermeyer Park, where were you taken? Where did you... I was in so much pain. You were pain. taken to the car home? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I stayed over there overnight. At John Carr's house? John's house on the upstairs. The thing is that we were told specifically by John, and I think it was his brother, never, ever talk anything about this, because if I did, people would start getting hurt. I'm Josh Zeman, and this is Searching for the Sons of Sam.
Episode 3, Hello from the Gutters. David Berkowitz arrived at the Kings County Hospital for mental tests by early afternoon, and thus ends what police believe was his reign of terror. So this, then, is the man police suspect of murdering six people, wounding seven others, and terrorizing the nation's largest city. To his colleagues, he was quiet, a good worker, and a loner. With the arrest of David Berkowitz, a sense of relief washed over New York City. For many, the nightmare was over. But for Maury Terry, it was just beginning. David Berkowitz, now in jail where he can do no harm. But he is still a human question mark. Who is David Berkowitz and what made him, as the police allege, the son of Sam? For Maury, a number of questions have been left unanswered, including questions about David Berkowitz's neighbors, the Carr family, which included Sam Carr and his two sons, John and Michael. Do you have any feeling about who Sam is? Is is son of Sam a name that the press has put on him? Is it the name that the police have Son of Sam is a name that we used first. Do you have any idea now who Sam is, and is it this man, Sam Carr, as the New York Post has I have said? no idea. Now I've interviewed a number of detectives over the years, and most have this saying, we don't believe in coincidences. Which is why I don't understand how so many detectives could accept all the coincidences in this case. How there are all these references to the literal sons of Sam, from the killer writing, I am the son of Sam, to the letter being signed, Sam's creation, to references of Papa Sam, to calling out Wicker Street, where the cars lived, to even writing the nickname of John Wheaties in the letter. But somehow, no one ever suspected John or Michael Carr, the actual sons of Sam. Now I get it was probably because Berkowitz confessed, claiming a demon dog told him to do it. Completely crazy reasoning, but I get it. I also get it was probably because the NYPD found a gun and a son of Sam letter in Berkowitz's car. I guess after 13 months of outwitting the NYPD, Berkowitz got lazy and left a pre-written letter and a machine gun out in plain sight for all to see. And yes, I also get that he looks like one of the sketches, although not the seven other sketches. But what I can understand is how in the days after the largest, most intense manhunt in New York City history, after which tens of thousands of man-hours were spent chasing down every possible lead, the NYPD didn't spend one hour interviewing the other two guys who lived down the street from Berkowitz and who also called themselves the Sons of Sam. Here's Omega Task Force Captain Joseph Borelli. Did you ever interview John Carr? Oh, the son? No, I didn't. I'll tell you, once we made the arrest, we tied up all the loose ends, made sure that everything fit, you know, and all, uh, assisted the prosecution, but he pled guilty. And this is Omega Task Force Detective Marlon Hopkins. Did you ever interview uh, John Carr? John Carr, the son of Sam Carr? No. No. 
Did you ever interview Michael Carr, the other son of Sam Carr? No. Did you ever follow up on any of the aliases used in the letter? Um... Whatever showed up in the letters, the terminology that he was using on people were of a language I didn't understand. If I understood the language, maybe I can ask questions. And here's Detective Bill Clark. Now, post-arrest, did you actually ever interview Sam Carr? No, I never did. Uh... What about his sons, the other sons of Sam? Yeah, I, I don't know if it would have, because we was, it's over. I mean, I sat down with Brinkley and he gave a full confession. And finally, Kevin Murphy of the Yonkers Police Department. Post-arrest, do you know if the NYPD ever interviewed Sam Carr? No, I don't know. Do you know if they ever interviewed John Carr? Again, no. But you have two individuals, sons of Sam Car, right. son of Sam. How is this not considered suspicious? You'd have to ask New York City on that. Now I know hindsight is twenty twenty, but this is crazy, and honestly, all the more crazy, considering what these same detectives said about the sketches. As far as the sketches are concerned, uh, did he look like um, anything of those sketches? Any one of them? In my estimation, no. Or James Justice, who is the NYPD detective who called the Yonkers Police Department and spoke to Wheat Carr. Seeing Berkowitz's face, did he look like any of those sketches? As far as I'm concerned, no. So how does something like this happen? Well, I also spoke with award-winning investigative reporter Frank Anthony, who we profiled in our show who also corroborated the John Carr connection. And I asked him to try and explain this to us. We couldn't figure it out. It just didn't make sense. And it wasn't only us, because we had those wonderful police detectives who tried to contact the New York City Police Department, and they had called and told them that uh, there was cult activity that involved Carr. And they said that nobody would talk to them either. What does that tell you? They wanted to keep everything simple. Simple case, one guy shooting these people, pick the guy up, put him in jail. Why open up a can of worms? It was done. It was done. Instead of chasing down any possible accomplices, the police closed the books and celebrated with the largest promotional ceremony in NYPD history. But why? Why would so many hardworking, honest cops overlook such important information or at least choose not to open up a can of worms? Well, to answer that question, let's rewind to the summer of 1976. Good evening. New York City was on the brink of default for most of the day. There was a general feeling that this was it, the day when the nation's largest city could not pay a large chunk of its massive debt. As we said in our previous episode, New York City had been in the middle of a horrific financial crisis. And then the son of Sam happened, which brought the city that never sleeps to the brink of disaster. Remember, for nearly a year, no one had been going out. The restaurants, theaters, and discos were all empty, and the city wasn't making any money, and Mayor Beam was losing in the polls to Ed Koch. And then suddenly, he appeared a mild-mannered postal worker 
named David Berkowitz, who was smiling for the cameras as he confessed to being the lone shooter in a series of crimes that had paralyzed the city in fear. Here's Mayor Beam the day after Berkowitz's arrest. And all New Yorkers, I'm sure, expressed their thanks to the police and retired detectives, all of whom pitched in. I want to express my thanks to the public and to the business community for their wonderful help and cooperation with our great police department. And the rest, they say, is history. Except for an investigative journalist named Maury Terry, who refused to let it go. The general perception among the public had been that David Berkowitz was a lone gunman. The facts and the evidence say otherwise. Again, here's Phil Amicone, Maury's brother-in-law and former mayor of Yonkers, with his take on the case. It would seem that investigation should have included conversations with the members of the Carr family, all of them. The fact that they didn't do it leads me now to believe that either they were told not to do it because politically we don't want to prolong it any further because then people will think that it's not over, or they didn't want to pursue it any further. I suspect it was a combination of both. Maury always told me that most of all, he just wanted the NYPD to admit to their mistakes. I think deep down, for this all-American guy who was once an altar boy and who loved baseball, the idea that the good guys can somehow be corrupted by politics, I think it offended him. And I think that's why he kept on digging and why he was willing to peer into the darkest corners of this big city's underbelly. Hello from the gutters of New York City, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Again, this is the second son of Sam Letter that reads like dialogue from a movie. Hello from the sewers of New York City, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. I asked Maury if he thought this letter could have been inspired by one of the most popular movies of 1976, one that almost every New Yorker would have seen, Taxi Driver. Someday a real rain will come and wash all this scum off the streets. I go all over. I take people to the Bronx, Brooklyn. I take them to Harlem. I don't care. About a guy who drove around for hours at night, just like David Berkowitz, who was a cab driver in the early 70s in Co-op City. And about a guy who also wore a green military jacket, just like John Carr. Each night when I return the cab to the garage, I have to clean the cum off the back seat. Some nights I clean off the blood. Maury thought my Travis Bickle connection was a stretch, though it only goes to show how easy it is to see connections if you want to find them. You got a 44 Magnum? It's an expensive weapon. That's all right, I got money. It's a real monster. But Maury was sure of the code leading to Berkowitz's apartment, as well as the aliases that included John Wheaties. But the clues didn't end there. For example, let's go back to the opening line of the second letter, Hello from the Gutters of New York City, which Maury believed was referencing 
a very specific location, one that was literally feet from Berkowitz's front door. Here's a quote from an article Maury wrote in the Herald Statesman. We always called it the gutter, said a local teenager named Vince, who was asked that his last name be withheld. The gutters Vince is referring to was the Croton Aqueduct, a hundred-year-old tunnel system that brought water to New York City. The tunnel, close to eight feet in diameter, winds some 25 miles as it travels along the Hudson River and right underneath Yonkers. But the local kids had another name for the aqueduct. They called it the sewer, which brings us back to the letter again. Hello from the sewers of New York City. So right now, I'm standing on what's called Gutter's Path, a dirt trail that runs through the woods of Yonkers. And I'm told that 12 feet below me is the Croton Aqueduct, a.k.a. the Gutters. Now every few miles, you'll see evidence of the tunnel below, namely these large stone vents called weirs. And right now, I'm standing on the spot where the path crosses Wicker Street. Looking up to my right, and counting the number of floors, I can see what was once Berkowitz's apartment bedroom window. Apartment 11C. And looking to my left, less than 100 feet away, I can literally see inside the car's house, where Papa Sam and his sons John and Michael lived, including the attic that was mentioned in the letter. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic, too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. Needless to say, standing here, thinking about Berkowitz peering right into the car's house and the car's looking back into Berkowitz's bedroom. It all seems so perfectly creepy. Just like the thought of all them slipping down into the tunnels right beneath our feet. That's where it said... They had killed a number of German shepherds. And I also found it strange how this notion of tunnels keeps popping up in these stories of suburban horror, just like in our documentary Cropsey. I heard things about the tunnel network under Willowbrook State School. It was set up like a hub with spokes. And you could get, say, from the cafeteria out to every ward. Look, maybe this is what he's talking about. There's a tunnel. Goes all the way down here. In Staten Island, they had built tunnels underneath the Willowbrook State School so the attendants could transport groups of developmentally disabled children from one building to another. I'm not saying that there's anything here. Maybe it's people's imaginations. I mean, it's scary because you don't know who can be here, but there's no devil worshippers. There are some crosses on the building across the way. We should go. Just let's check it out. Much like in Staten Island... You can almost feel that same eeriness here, in Yonkers, and with good reason. Walking about a half mile further, I'm now in front of an old stone stairway. On either side of me are the marble statues of a lion's head and a unicorn. Looking at footage of Maury in the 80s, walking up these exact same stairs, you notice that someone had broken off the head of the unicorn and dripped red paint into the lion's eyes to make it look like he was crying blood. You got the devil people coming down here once in a while. Then you got the good guys coming. Here's the pentagram. 
back then, when this was all overgrown. The crying lion and the headless unicorn. That's how you knew you'd found the entrance to the old estate. What we now call Untermeyer Park. Untermeyer Park in the city of Yonkers, 15 miles north of Times Square. Once the extravagant playground of a millionaire, the park is now open for public use. Through the gardens, past the lavish fountains, down the concrete steps. On the other side of the brush, a handful of the public put the park to a most unusual use. Here, in an abandoned pump house, local residents still call the Devil's Cave a satanic cult would meet. It was here that Berkowitz alleged the Carr brothers and a group of 22 disciples would meet. This is Untermeyer Park in suburban Yonkers. This afternoon, young people who said they have frequented the park for many years led us down this once elegant flight of carved stone stairs, then through underbrush to an old abandoned pump house, which was one of two locations in which the cult worshipped. The Gannett newspaper chain said members of the cult may have helped confessed murderer David Berkowitz kill six people and wound seven others in 1976 and... And it was here where the disciples held their ceremonies, where they drank stale wine and urine and the blood of German shepherds, which might sound familiar. Hello from the gutters of New York City, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. But were all these so-called clues real? Or were they the product of an armchair detective with an overactive imagination who believed the rantings of a convicted madman, which is a question I often ask myself while sitting with Maury. And I think he knew it too. Logical reason? He may have told me. I'd have to go look that all up in files, which I will do. But I mean, to see how this stuff comes in? No, I know. But I mean, that's confirmed. During our lunches, Maury would often shuffle off to a bedroom office filled with banker's boxes to grab some file or press clipping some piece of evidence to temper my skepticism. And I remember helping him pull out one box that held hundreds of letters between Berkowitz and himself. Now, you met David Berkowitz. Uh, What was your impression of him? I met David Berkowitz a number of times. I spoke to him this week, in fact. You did? Uh, Yes, I have. And um, my impression of him is that whatever dark woods he was in 20 years ago, he has come out of. While some of the letters between Maury and Berkowitz spoke of murder and mayhem, others were completely mundane, as the two talked about the weather, their declining health, or how bad the New York Giants were doing. Scanning page after page, I was hard-pressed to find evidence of Berkowitz as some manipulative madman. More so, found someone who was always being manipulated, whether by the cars the press, or even Maury himself. In one correspondence, Berkowitz talks about the first time he met Michael Carr, the middle sibling of John and Wheat. He alleges meeting Michael in the spring of 1975 at a party while he was living in the Bronx, when Michael was still a member of Scientology, who had just started dabbling in the occult. I was lonely, looking for friends, and I'd always been intrigued by the occult. They presented all this to me in a harmless way, just witchcraft and seances. 
Plus, there were a few attractive girls in it. I had no idea what was in store. Berkowitz said he began to associate with the group at parties or at bars or sometimes at late-night meetings in the woods in and around the Bronx. In time, they took me to Untermeyer, slightly less than two dozen, both males and females involved in the main part of the group. Berkowitz would later admit that the 22 members of this group were the same 22 disciples of hell, mentioned in the Breslin letter. Here's a clip we found of Maury speaking on a local radio station in the early 1980s about the same 22 disciples. You told me there were 22 members in the New York chapter. The New York chapter had 22 hardcore members. People who knew about the murders and took part in the planning in some way or another. The actual people on the scene of the murders, the wheelmen, the lookouts, the shooters, you're talking about 12 that They were called the children. But Maury knew that Berkowitz's own words wouldn't be enough. That he needed to find someone who was part of the disciples, or at least somebody who could corroborate the car's involvement. And eventually he found it in a Milwaukee street preacher who was once just a scared teenager growing up in Yonkers. Here again is John Paul. What I did know was that they would get him in from the freshman year when they were basically innocent, you know, and they went out specifically looking for people who they could control. People who seemed vulnerable? Very vulnerable. You know, kids who were very naive and very innocent and didn't know anything. Like John Paul, Berkowitz also knew he was being groomed. I didn't realize it then, but now I can see that I was being brought along slowly. Was John Carr uh, more or less acting as like a recruiter for the group? I think he was a liaison between the older, uh, more established people that had been in it for a while and the new kids of recruits. Up in Untermeyer Park that night, was there a lot of people present? It had to be more than uh, 20 to 30 people. Were they all young people or were there adults there as well? No, if it was all young people, it would have been a different pitch and voice. Okay, that I do remember. There were older people in there. You could pretty well recognize that some were in their 20s all the way up until their 40s. It wasn't a young kid thing. I mean, I think the kids were just brought in as a recruitment from the older individuals. But as Maury would learn, Berkowitz's grooming went far beyond just ceremonies. In 1976, Berkowitz would move from the Bronx to Yonkers, which raises the question, did Berkowitz want to be closer to the cars, or did the cars want Berkowitz closer to them? Which brings us back to the mystery of who exactly wrote these letters and why. As we discussed in our previous episode, both Maury and the press noted that the second letter, the Breslin letter, sounded and looked different from the first. In fact, the second letter was so well-drafted with its flawless comic book-style lettering that the NYPD even consulted experts at Marvel and DC Comics, assuming that the letter writer was a professional illustrator. Ironically, there was one right under their noses. In 1976, Michael Carr registered his new business, Carr Illustration Studios, 
at his father's Yonkers address. Eventually, Maury would bring in a handwriting expert to help him prove his theory regarding the two letters. Renowned handwriting expert Charles Hamilton has ruled out David Berkowitz as the author of the Son of Sam letters which taunted police during the murder spree. This handwriting is not only totally different from Berkowitz's, but it represents a, a level of education and sophistication that Berkowitz never at any time reached. But Maury would find another clue to help unravel the Son of Sam conspiracy in the curious condition of David Berkowitz's apartment. On the night of Berkowitz's arrest, the police found his apartment in shambles. He barely had any furniture except for a lone mattress. His belongings, including records and pornographic magazines, were strewn everywhere. And most interestingly, a hole had been punched in a wall with a message scribbled around it. Hi, my name is Mr. Williams, and I live in this hole. I have several children who I'm turning into killers. Wait till they grow up. While these reports of a chaotic apartment only added to the lore of the tortured madman, Berkowitz would suggest it was all part of an elaborate ruse. In one letter, Berkowitz tells Maury how with the police closing in, the apartment was staged for their arrival. He also told me the Colt rented a van to move furniture from his apartment. He said the furniture was taken to the Salvation Army warehouse in Mount Vernon in the middle of the night. We checked the location he specified, and sure enough, there it was. The broken wall of my apartment was only knocked in several days before I got arrested. As for the scrawls on the walls, they were only written several days before my arrest. This clearly points to advanced planning and, of course, sanity. But it wasn't my idea, and I'm certain you know this. Finally, after months of back and forth, Berkowitz would come clean, revealing to Maury the sequence of events leading up to his arrest. From 1975 to 1976, Berkowitz, a loner and practically a virgin, was indoctrinated into the cult through sex, drugs, and ritual to be a willing soldier of Satan. It was decided that he would admit to being the lone gunman, and if he got cold feet, they'd threaten to kill his family. Then they made sure the puzzle pieces fit in traditional serial killer style. Having Berkowitz send crazy hate-filled letters to neighbors, including the car's own father referencing dogs, then shooting two local dogs, including the father's own neurotic Labrador that the boys detested. All incidences that created a literal paper trail of crimes connecting back to Berkowitz. Police say there seems to be some kind of vague cycle to the attacks by this killer. The killer will leave clues, but to leave clues, he'll have to attack again. If you have any information at all about this killer... Then there were the clues within the second letter, which included locations that referenced Yonkers, as well as coded directions to Berkowitz's house. Then there was the setup of Berkowitz's apartment, as well as the third letter and machine gun, sitting out in plain sight in Berkowitz's car. And finally, upon his arrest, Berkowitz would tell anyone who would listen that a demon dog made him commit the crimes. He would plead insanity and receive a lesser sentence, while those who were seemingly responsible would escape scrutiny. Ironically, the only part of the plan that didn't work was the insanity plea. Bowing to public pressure, the DA refused to accept the first two psychiatric evaluations of insanity. 
and kept sending Berkowitz back until he found a doctor who would say that Berkowitz was fit to stand trial. He then convinced Berkowitz to plead guilty, which his lawyers agreed to do on his behalf, resulting in an uncontested 400-year prison sentence. In 1978, Berkowitz wrote Maury the following. Look, Maury, please don't knock yourself out over all this as it isn't worth it. What's done is done and it cannot be undone. So if you just can't seem to go further, then I'll understand. Maury, the public will never ever truly believe you no matter how well your evidence is presented unless you could first convince the public that I was sane all along. But there's also evidence to suggest Berkowitz wasn't being totally subservient. Here's a letter found in his apartment which was suppressed by the Brooklyn DA's office. The letter reads, This is a warning to all police agencies in the tri-state area. For your information, a satanic cult that has been established for quite some time has been instructed to begin to systematically kill and slaughter young girls or people of good health and clean blood. In this ritual, the victims are chosen at random and their blood is spilled. Warning, I, David Berkowitz, have been chosen to be one of the executioners for the cult. So was Berkowitz having second thoughts? Or was he trying to give himself leverage in case his insanity plea failed? It seems we'll never know. But if Berkowitz was nothing more than a patsy, then who was the actual mastermind of the Son of Sam attacks? Maury assumed the real-life sons of Sam, John, and Michael Carr were responsible. That was until John's suspicious suicide in Minot, North Dakota. John Carr, interestingly enough, was blown away out in North Dakota about six months after David Berkowitz was arrested. That was the end of one son of Sam. The other real-life son of Sam, Michael Carr, was killed in a very, very strange automobile wreck on the West Side Highway just as the son of Sam case was being reopened by the Queens District Attorney's Office. So I know I've been saying for a while now that I didn't quite believe Maury back then. But knowing what I know today, that's no longer 100% true. At least when it comes to Berkowitz not acting alone. In fact, I find it plausible, if not very likely, that John and Michael Carr were somehow involved. Now that's just my opinion, but I wasn't the only one. Both cars had been investigated by the Queen's DA's office. And even Wheat Carr, the sister of John and Michael, made mention of John's possible connection. At the time that John committed suicide, he had come home in January, this is 1978, that he came home because he was scared. He was afraid whoever it was had followed him here. He was really paranoid. John's involvement in the occult I'm not going to deny, there's no way I can deny, and I'd be stupid to deny, John was very heavy into drugs. I'm being told they found letters John wrote to Berkowitz or Berkowitz wrote to John. I really would have to see those letters right in my hand, and I would know my brother's handwriting. And I'll tell you the truth, I don't even care if my brother comes up totally dirty. I just want it resolved. Do I find it strange that both real-life sons of Sam died mysteriously? Absolutely. In fact, I interviewed a mental health professional 
who said that John told him that someone was trying to kill him literally days before he died. But whether he committed suicide or something more, I don't know. Here again is John Paul. What did you think when you found out that John Carr, six months after Berkowitz was arrested, that John Carr was found dead? What did you think when you heard about John Carr? I found out about death of John, okay, on TV. And I see that John, quote, I, I, I thought was a suicide, okay, but it wasn't. It was murder, okay? They shot him up because he definitely knew too much. His brother knew too much. But any person who has dealt with it one way or another has been shut up, either uh, overdoses of drugs, either been blasted away, potential suicides. But the thing was, the only way that you could get out of this thing, Mari, was either they killed you off, you killed yourself off with, with a suicide. That was the only way to get carried out in a pine box. While Mari and I differ as to what really happened to John Carr, whether he died by somebody else's hand or his own, in some ways, it doesn't matter. Because this is where the Son of Sam story takes an even darker turn. Did John Carr at one time in New York City describe to you uh, how things were escalating and talk about a structure? Uh... John talked very specifically about a pyramid, okay? And that to get to another level of this pyramid, he had to turn around and prove that he was worthy of this level and had to kill somebody. And I said, John, come on, this is, you know, you're talking out of your hat. Nobody's going to deal with this. And he was very intense about that. What he was telling me was this whole thing had gone off in a completely different direction from when I had originally been brought into it. Because initially, I think it was just uh, a game. Somewhere along the line, somebody got to the head of this thing and took it in a completely different direction. Now, if John Paul was right, then this presents an even more troubling scenario. Because if someone was pulling the strings and eliminating the weakest links, as Maury had suspected, and it wasn't the devil you know, John Carr, Michael Carr, or David Berkowitz, then that would mean the real sons of Sam are somewhere still out there, walking the streets and waiting to strike again. The four-part Netflix docuseries, The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness, is streaming now on Netflix. Go watch and join us here on Wednesdays and Fridays for new episodes as we go deeper down the rabbit hole. This podcast is a production of Netflix and Tenderfoot TV in association with Gigantic Studios. Thanks for listening.